Stand by. Stand by. You have entered a locked orbit with Precinct Omega. Your data has been lodged and recorded. You have one message. Playing message from Precinct Omega. So last week, uh, I couldn't record properly on my software, so I gave up and I went live on YouTube. And that was quite popular, and it went quite well. Um, so I thought, hey, I'll do it again this week. And I went on YouTube to go live. I was live for 10 minutes. I got one person in the live stream, which was good. Uh, unfortunately, that person reported that I was not outputting any audio, which is infuriating. So now I'm here trying to record this directly to my laptop, as I normally do. But last week, that wasn't working, and I've done nothing to change it. So my hopes are not high. Um, I'm going to just pause now and go and check my input and see whether it's working. So, so far it seems to be working, which is good news. Um, but what I'm going to do is, is try and keep these segments relatively short so that I can keep chopping back and checking that my audio is actually going in. Um, yeah, not sure what happened on, on YouTube. It seems to be fine. All the microphones are working. Even the software is working, which it wasn't doing last week. So go figure. Anyway, let's get on to the topic. This week, we're going to be looking at the role of retro in the war games market. Retro as in um, nostalgia, as in tapping into themes, products, ideas that evoke an earlier, somehow more positive or brighter time in the past. And I kind of touched upon this last week when I talked about Games Workshop's imminent Horus Heresy box set release, because that seems to tap pretty hard into a certain amount of uh, retro and nostalgia. We've got what looks like third edition 40k rules, we've got the whippy measuring sticks and old templates, we've got beaky Corvus Mark VI space marines going right back to the original RTB-01 designs and before that um, to the first metal space marine designs. All of that kind of uh, speaks to Games Workshop consciously, intentionally tapping into the market for the retro tabletop. But as ever I don't really want to talk about Games Workshop because what put me onto this was a hunt for a different theme. Uh, I was originally going to talk about Kickstarters, and I am going to talk about Kickstarters, but the one that sort of caught my eye first of all was one for a game called Warzone Eternal by uh, Res Nova Games. Now, Warzone is one of those subjects that can really polarise people if they've heard of it. Um, well, I suppose if it polarises people, generally they've either heard of it or they haven't. Um, Warzone was launched in the early 1990s, if I remember correctly, um, as an intentional direct competitor to Warhammer 40,000. I think the original publishing company was based in Scandinavia. Uh, I think Denmark, but I could be wrong. And very quickly it proved to be a contender finding space on independent wargaming shop shelves all over Europe and the US at a time when Warhammer 40,000 was just picking up. But then of course Games Workshop went into their phase of attacking independent high street wargaming shops by opening Games Workshop stores all over the UK uh, primarily and then pushing into the United States later. 
with, with the pretty much express intention of putting independent retailers in those shops out of business in order to corner the tabletop wargaming market, which they did very successfully. Uh, Warzone suffered, they didn't have their own shops, didn't have their own distribution network, um, they relied upon those independent retailers, those retailers gradually went out of business, market for Warzone contracted, market for Warhammer 40,000 expanded and filled that space, and eventually Warzone kind of disappeared. But it's never really gone away. There have been a number of different iterations of Warzone over the years since it initially sort of uh, lost momentum. Um, I, I'm almost certainly going to miss some of them. I'm doing this off the top of my head. But uh, we had Warzone Mutant Chronicles, which is a roleplay game set in the Warzone setting. Um, and Mutant Chronicles is the name of the universe, if I remember correctly. Warzone is specifically the miniatures war game. Mutant Chronicles is like the, the big picture setting. And the Mutant Chronicles roleplay game is still published, I believe, by Modifius Entertainment. Um, and a contact of mine I know who has written extensively for that game, and I've heard many positive things about it. Never tried it myself. Um, and then Prodos Games, the ill-fated Prodos Games, uh, obtained a license, and they attempted to kickstart Warzone um, in, I think they called it Warzone Rebirth, something like that, or Warzone Resurrection. Maybe it was Warzone Resurrection. Uh, they ran a successful Kickstarter, a less successful fulfilment campaign, it has to be said, and there was certainly no follow-up. Uh, Prodos very shortly after that went into administration, and the people involved opened up a new business and, and sort of started off afresh. So that was a failure, um, but now we see Warzone Eternal coming up. So uh, the company behind Warzone Eternal is called Resnova, which means new thing, Resnova Games. They are based in the United States, so it doesn't look like they're related to Prodos Games or the original owners of Warzone. Um, I don't know precisely who is behind Resnova. I do know that their registered address is a post office box in a UPS shop. Uh, so it's probably not a significant institution. I'm just guessing that this may be uh, a one person pursuing a, I don't want to say vanity project, that's not fair, um, pursuing a, a entrepreneurialship in the market with a new idea, with, this is the point of this episode, with an old idea re-envisaged for a new time. Um, and it's, they're running a Kickstarter, Kickstarter starts in a few days, so you can look for Warzone Eternal if you're interested. They have new miniatures designs, they've got new art, new rulebook, everything is new. Uh, miniatures designs are very, very much along the lines of the classic ones. So if you're familiar with the original Warzone miniatures, the new releases look like they are designed to mesh well with the classics. Um, they are chunky, they are kind of squat, they are definitely that heroic scaling that we'll be familiar with from uh, sort of 4th, uh, 5th uh, edition, 40k. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're fine looking pieces. They're all sort of 3D sculpts, uh, how they're going to be delivered in the Kickstarter, whether they're going to be white metal, such like, uh, I have no idea. Um, go and have a look at the Kickstarter if you're interested. But it, it kind of sparked me thinking 
about this idea of retro gaming. Um, that, you know, Warzone is one of those games like Battletech, like Heavy Gear, uh, that has this kind of cult following of people who remember it from their childhood or from their teen years and who are excited to try and recapture something of that flavour. Again, whether or not it was a decent game, I have no idea. Never played it, couldn't comment. Um, I, I don't think that matters for the purposes of marketing it. I think uh, Warzone Eternal is a really good example of it only requiring the people buying into it to believe in it as a, as a, a property, as a concept, almost as an emotional idea rather than as an actual product uh, in order for it to be successful. Are there enough people out there that are ready to try Warzone again after being, I don't want to say let down, um, after being, well, I mean, let down by Prodos, no question, but perhaps after being disappointed by, by many attempts to reboot, restart, revisit Warzone over the years, are they ready for another one? Um, well, I, I guess the name tells us. Is Warzone Eternal? Uh, they think it's got legs. They think it's going to go on. Check it out. I'll be watching with interest. But having said that about Warzone Eternal, uh, it was interesting that in my same sort of scrape through the news at the same time, I came across news about a game called Void. Now, if you have heard of Warzone, if, if you had contact with Warzone when it was new, you may also have had contact with Void. Uh, Void didn't release uh, at the same time as Warzone. It was, it was probably about a decade later, actually. It was early 2000s that Void came out. Um, I remember because I had just finished at Sandhurst. I had just joined my first regiment. I was in Aldershot and uh, I tracked down a local independent wargaming retailer when those things still were just about clinging onto the market. And I went in and I discovered Void. I discovered Void the same time as I discovered War Machine. So these two games very much um, hitting the market at the same time. War Machine uh, coming out from the United States uh, to fantasy with a this big, bulky, heavy metal, steampunk fantasy idea, and then Void, um, a similar aesthetic. It was a chunky, heroic scaled sci-fi game. Didn't have the miniatures range at launch that War Machine did, but they had an interesting set of rules. They had a very slick uh, aesthetic that was kind of it was kind of clean 40k. It was non-gothic Warhammer 40,000, little bit cyberpunk, little bit anime, but not really deep into either of those things. Um, and it, it, I mean, it immediately caught my attention because I do love sci-fi. It is my first love, even before fantasy. And I, I never bought into the game in a big way, but I definitely bought quite a few of the miniatures in the early days. And I spent a long time pouring over the rules and looking for somebody to play the game with. Uh, I never found anybody who was also interested in the game and so it kind of got sidelined by me and very quickly sidelined by the market. Um, now Void as a property has been kicking around for a while. It got picked up by a company called Urban Mammoth 
who rejigged the setting into a game called Urban War using some of the miniatures from the original game, bunch of new miniatures, same environmental setting. It was set in the same universe, uh, but not the same game. It was more of a skirmish game, whereas Void was, was a, um, a battle game, very much, again, pitching alongside Warhammer 40,000. It was released at the point where Warhammer 40,000 was starting to lose its grip on the market, which is, again, why War Machine managed to get a, a toe in. So it, it should be no surprise that Void came out at the same time. Didn't have War Machine success. Um, but again, like Warzone, it's never quite gone away. And uh, the license was picked up, ooh, three? Three years ago, maybe four years ago, by a company called Seb Games. Uh, Seb Games, based in Scotland, and they also, I think, picked up the Keltos license, so I don't think they've still got that. Um, and they have their own set of fantasy combat games as well. Now, Seb Games is an interesting company to dig into the background of. So, Seb Games itself is not the company. The company is called... Metal Warrior Miniatures Limited. Uh, Seb Games is a trading name of Metal Warrior Miniatures Limited, which is confusing because Metal Warrior Miniatures is also a trading name of Seb Games. So they have a line of miniatures called Metal Warrior Miniatures, which are fantasy historical stuff. Um, but the parent company is also Metal Warrior Miniatures. Metal Warrior Miniatures is registered in Scotland and it is owned by a Polish gentleman who lives in Sweden. Now, I don't know the background. I don't know the history or the story of why that is. All I can say is that were I in the position of thinking about extending credit to this company, or a loan, or anything along those lines, all of those things would raise some red flags for me. Now, that doesn't mean that they're a bad bet, or, or that anybody involved in the company is doing anything underhanded, um, but if I were involved in financial dealings with this company, I would need some additional reassurance that they were a legitimate trading business based on purely what I can see on Company's House. This is particularly interesting because Seb Games has been trading as Seb Games since at least 2016, but Metal Warrior Miniatures Limited was only founded last year. And I've never heard of the guy who owns it, which isn't completely unexpected given that he's Polish and, and I, I don't know the names of all uh, Polish war games manufacturing people, and there are a lot of them. Um, but I know a few, and this guy has not come across my radar before. So, it's just weird. Okay? I'm, I'm not saying there's anything hinky or, or inappropriate going on at, at Seb Games or Metal Warrior Miniatures. It, it, it's just... Eh, yeah, the, the, the company seems strange to me. However, mm, back to Void. Point is, Void is not new to Seb Games. They've, they've had the license for, I think, since 2018, and they've been selling Void. But they have recently noticed that they're not shifting all that much, I suspect. Um, there are certainly people out there who are buying it, but it's small volume, and most people, I think, are buying the miniatures as proxies for other games, or for games like Stargrave, or 
yeah, who knows, Horizon War Zero Dark, because they're nice looking, simple to paint, chunky 28mm white metal miniatures, and people like those. What's interesting is their recent news, which is a release called Void Squad Tactics. Um, and this is recent. Void Squad Tactics is a new thing. I think it's currently in pre-order, so it's not actually something that is, is on the shelves at Seb Games just yet. Um, and it's not... And this is important. It is not a skirmish version of Void. Uh, Void is, by the way, is now currently Void 1.1. When it was first released, it was Void 1.0. So it was released back in the early 2000s as Void 1.0. Now it's Void 1.1. All that basically means is it is the same game. It's the same game that was released at the start with some tweaks. Um, and those tweaks were introduced by Seb Games. Um, so they have updated the game. So they are, they are you know intellectually invested in this game. So I don't want you to get the impression that I'm suggesting this is some kind of cash grab. They are clearly developing the property. Void Squad Tactics is, I'll tell you what it's a good equivalent of, it's like Infinity Code 1, if you've come across that. So Infinity 4th Edition is this big, sprawling, expansive game with masses of choice and masses of depth and complexity. And so Code 1 is a compacted version of the same rules, so it's the same rules, but with some of the fiddly stuff cut out. And the idea is that you play it with fixed squads. Code 1 squads are what's available for you for Code 1, and it's the same with Void Squad Tactics. So the idea is you buy a squad in a box with the rules and everything you need to play, and you get those out on the table, and you just play with those miniatures. It's the same rules. I think they're compressed, but they're still Void 1.1 rules. Um, and, and that's a new release from them. But there is nothing new in the miniatures that are being sold. And I don't say that as a point of criticism, I hasten to add. I think the original miniatures are great. I think it's really, really interesting, actually, that if you were a Void player now, you not, not only could play with the same miniatures that were released 20 years ago, but you would have no option but to play with the same miniatures that were released 20 years ago. Those miniatures are still the miniatures that are being sold for the game. Um, so somebody could get into this game today, buy all the miniatures they needed, brand new off the shelf, paint them up, put them on the tabletop, play somebody who's been playing the same game for 22 years, and they would have exactly the same miniatures collection. Same aesthetic, same scale, same sculpting style. In many cases, exactly the same miniatures. Just cast longer ago. And I can't really think of any current miniatures game that can say the same thing. I mean, we talked last week about DP9. Obviously, they've completely revamped their miniatures range with plastics all over the place. Games Workshop, obviously, massively revolutionised how and what they manufacture over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, even Battletech, which has sustained the same core aesthetic throughout its, its life, has, you know, the official owners, the Catalyst Games, who own the Battletech license now, are producing new miniatures with new designs and new aesthetics. Um, and, and there are loads of, of independent sort of aftermarket companies producing stuff for Battletech. Strato Minis, whom I know well, are one example who are producing what they call their Retrobots range that are clearly inspired 
by Battletech Minis. Now, Iron Wind Metals is still out there making the original Battletech range, but even they are producing updated, more modern sculpts and designs for Battletech, because that's what the market is after. But in the case of Void, nothing. It's exactly the same. Um, and in many cases, that's a really good thing, because they're mm, very stylish minis. In others, less so. Um, they recently put the Tiger APC back on the market, which is possibly the dumbest armoured personnel carrier design in science fiction ever. Um, I'm prepared to be challenged on that. Please, if you know of more dumb APC designs than the Void Tiger, let me know. I'm prepared to accept that even the Corvus, their other vehicle, which is loosely based on the Tiger, makes more sense than the Tiger. Right. Um, so that's Void. So that was... Uh, that's where we got to. I'm going to take a break, get my brain in order, and talk about the next stuff. Right. Yes, my brain is back on straight again. I wanted to talk about two things that are only tangentially connected to that theme of retro gaming. Um, and one was... Well, they're both Kickstarters. So one is a Kickstarter called Mega Tokyo Madness, uh, Modular 6 mil Terrain. Now, both of these Kickstarters have finished. Um, I don't know if they're available for late pledges. Not a clue, but you can look them up. This one leapt out at me for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it's a 3D printable 6 mil sci-fi terrain, which, as somebody who has written a 6 mil sci-fi battle game in the form of Horizon Wars and is developing a sequel, Horizon Wars Midnight Dark. Um, obviously, I'm interested in 6mm sci-fi projects. Uh, this one was interesting. The designs are quite cool looking, and they are designed for you to be able to build LEDs into the uh, buildings to make them sort of light up and give you a really sort of, uh, well, it's called Mega Tokyo, to give you that sort of uh, Mega Tokyo sci-fi cyberpunk aesthetic in your 6mm games, which is cool. I like that, but... That's not what really made this Kickstarter stick out to me and make me want to talk about it in this episode. What made this Kickstarter stick out to me was that it wasn't set up explicitly to market these products. And it only raised, I'm just checking, it only raised just, just under $1,500 uh, with 23 backers. And I think that's a bit of a shame. Um, because I think, although it was quite a niche product, I think it had an interesting purpose. And this speaks to me, because the guy behind this Kickstarter ran the Kickstarter in order to provide a real-life commercial project for his students to contribute towards. And... So what he's done is use the products that he's designed. He, he designed these 3D buildings. Um, but he, And I, I assume he's a teacher. Um, and I don't know what the nature of the background is. But what he's done is use this project as a teaching tool for business students, photography students, marketing, design, computer science, I think. I'm not sure. Um, to put together something that was a real commercial project. You know, here is a product, I've designed it, here it is, now you guys come up with how we're going to market this 
using Kickstarter. Yeah. How is it going to be presented? What's the process? How do we reach people? How do we deliver and sustain it? Really very, very interesting. And I love that somebody is using Kickstarter in that way. I think that's an incredibly imaginative, creative, innovative approach that I think uh, business studies teachers, art teachers, photography teachers, anybody with um, a topic that is, is potentially vocational could really, really uh, take on board. Now, as I say, they, they didn't raise all that much money. I'm sure they didn't need to. Um, maybe that's a failure on the marketing side of the product. I don't know. But I was just struck by that, you know, somebody using Kickstarter, you know, not, not for what it was intended. And this is, you know, people like me that are trying to run small Kickstarters to really get something off the ground can get a little bit funny about these big companies that run Kickstarters as essentially glorified marketing exercises that we kind of feel draws away from us. And of course we do. But this is somebody using Kickstarter for something quite different, with a, a very different message, a very different mission, um, that I, I thought was tremendously interesting. And, and I would like to see more of that. And I could see our hobby being a more active participant in people wanting to do that kind of thing. And I don't know where those thoughts are going, to be honest, I, I can see them going in different directions. I just thought I'd put it out there on the table and see if anybody else found that as interesting as I do. Anyway, check it out. As I say, it is called, you can still see it on Kickstarter, it's called Mega Tokyo Madness Modular 6mm Terrain. So that was one of the two Kickstarters that I wanted to talk about in particular today. The other one, uh, in some ways, is similar. Uh, the Kickstarter project itself is called Hunting Packs of Dogs Miniatures. So it's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, it, it comes across in that title that the person behind it I don't think has English as a first language. Um, Hunting Packs of Dogs Miniatures um, is a uh, miniatures release by a chap called Jorge Fernandez Sanz. I think that's how he pronounces his family name. Um, and again, it's not raised a huge amount, it's raised the modest sum of 1,130 euros and this was to produce two sets of dwarf hunting dog packs. One sort of regular dwarves with uh, a range of bulldog, hunting bulldogs, uh, which for anybody who knows bulldogs is hilarious, um, and the other was abyssal dwarfs or chaos dwarfs if you prefer with kind of abyssal bulldogs, kind of undead bulldog kind of things. Um, and they're cool, yeah? I mean, they're okay miniatures. They are 3D sculpts. Uh, he's not selling them as STLs, though. He is printing them in 4K resin and just selling the resin prints, which, again, speaks to me. That's one of the things that my Kickstarter is going to be doing, although I'm also selling the STLs. Um, but what made this Kickstarter stand out to me was the care and attention that Yorge put into the composition of the Kickstarter. Um, you know, I, I sort of went to have a look at it out of sheer curiosity. Oh, it's a Kickstarter. Oh, it's for some miniatures. I'll look at that and see what he's done. And the more I scrolled through the story section, the more impressed I was by the time and effort 
uh, an attention to detail that was put into the presentation of the product. Um, that it hasn't raised all that much money, I don't know how much Jorge was hoping for, I should know because I can look. Uh, it had a target of 100 euros. Um, so I suppose, you know, he raised over 10 times more than his target, which is great. Um, 1,130 euros, ah, I mean, in my day job, I, I would barely get out of bed. Um, but, you know, that's 10 times what he was looking for, but still a really modest sum. Um, so I, I can only imagine that there's sort of more work to be done behind the scenes in actually marketing and driving awareness of these products. But here I am talking about the work of, uh, of Jorge, Jorge Fernandez Sanz, that's S-A-N-Z, uh, and you can look up his Kickstarter, Hunting Packs of Dogs Miniatures. Now, as I say, that Kickstarter's finished, but if you're interested in seeing what else Jorge has done, you can look at his profile. In fact, do you know, do you know I haven't done that. I'm going to go and have a quick look now, see how many, uh, how many has he actually made. He's created two so far. That was his second... So the first one was just for packs of dogs, and then that was sort of an upgrade with, with dog handlers alongside it. I imagine there'll be more. Um, so check them out. Uh, if you're interested in running a small Kickstarter, I, I, as I say, I was very impressed. I'm going to be studying your gay's work, less his sculpting, less his miniatures than just his Kickstarter layout, um, in more detail to see if there are ideas that I can take away and use in the Precinct Omega Kickstarter. So... That was all the news and discussion that I wanted to cover this week. I'm going to take one more break, check that my microphone is still working, which so far it seems to be, and then we will come back and talk about Precinct Omega and my Kickstarter. All right, lots of talking, voice starting to get a little bit weak. Um, I'm out of practice on this podcasting thing, no doubt. Um, so, Precinct Omega Kickstarter. So first of all, two, two things I just wanted to draw out from our uh, news today, which has nothing to do with retro gaming. That was just a, a curiosity of marketing for me. Um, but the two Kickstarters that I talked about first was uh, the Mega Tokyo Kickstarter, which was trying to do something different with Kickstarter. And although I am not going to pretend that I am doing anything radical, new or innovative with Kickstarter at this stage, um, I am trying to make the Precinct Omega Kickstarter stand out from other sci-fi miniatures Kickstarters for a lot of reasons. Partly the products. I would like to think that they will stand out for a number of reasons, which I'll talk about sometime. Um, but also the sort of the design, the design ethos that I'm adopting for both my games, my miniatures, my business. Um, and the fact that this, this genuinely is intended to be a Kickstarter as Kickstarter intended. I don't want to be coming back to Kickstarter time after time every time I want to release new miniatures. I want the miniatures to gain enough momentum that we can put new products into the market on a semi-regular basis based on the capital gleaned from running the Kickstarter. Either that... Or simply go, hey, look, you know, Kickstarter isn't giving me what I want and this isn't what we're going to do. Either one is fine with me. Obviously, I'd 
said either one's fine. Actually, no, the, the previous one is definitely preferred. I would prefer to make lots of money and be able to create new miniatures. That is definitely my preferred option, but I will not lose any sleep if the answer is, yeah, there's not that much interest. That's fine, it'll be a good experience anyway. So that's one thing. Um, I do want to keep in mind, though, the, the lesson from Mega Tokyo that there is more that can be done with Kickstarter, more that can be done with our communities, with the people around us, with the people we interact with, both inside the hobby and outside. It's got more potential than we are necessarily truly exploiting. Um, and I'd like to do more about that. So I'm just going to kind of lodge that in my head for future. Second one then is from um, Jorge's Kickstarter for our hunting dogs. And, you know, that was a really interesting read. I, I haven't, you know, I've looked through the Kickstarter. I saw a load of details that I went, wow, I need to look at this in more detail. I need to go away and study what he's done to see if there's anything I can take away. And it must seem strange, I guess, looking at a Kickstarter that isn't actually in that successful in raw terms to think about wanting to, to see what I can learn. But there are other Kickstarters I could have talked about that have also shown me things that I can learn, but most of those are just about wording. Most of them are just about covering your ass, making sure that you're not over-promising, making sure that people understand what they are getting for their rewards. Um, Yorgay's, meanwhile, just, it looked really thoughtful about communicating what the products were and what it was that Yorgay thought made those products truly appealing to his intended audience. Um, and I thought he did an incredibly good job. I am not in the market for dwarf bulldog hunting packs. But if I were, I would absolutely have backed that Kickstarter. Um, even if I were not in the market for dwarf bulldog hunting packs, but I was into dwarfs, I would get them. Or even if I ran a regular fantasy roleplay game, I mean, what a fantastic encounter they would make. Um, Everything about his Kickstarter made me look for an excuse to want to back it. That's, that's I think, is the key. And it just spoke to me. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just me. And, and you guys will look at it and go, what's special about this? Um, I'd be interested to hear. But I'm, the, as I say, the care that he took to try and persuade me to find a reason to back his Kickstarter was very impressive. Um, I think the only reason he didn't make more money was maybe that fewer people will have hit his landing page than he needed to drive the traffic to get sight. Which brings me to my Kickstarter at last. So, um, I've mentioned this before and I'm going to keep mentioning, basically you're going to get sick to the back teeth over the next two months of me talking about my damn Kickstarter. So I do not apologise for that at all because that is kind of my job here, is to persuade you to look at my Kickstarter and to persuade you looking at my Kickstarter that you want the products that I'm selling. Um, 
So I'm putting a lot of time into fine-tuning the content of my Kickstarter to try and learn how to make it look right. Now, if you are interested in my Kickstarter, there are two things you should definitely do. The first is that you should go to precinctomega.co.uk, follow the link on the homepage to the subscription page, and sign up to the newsletter. Uh, if you sign up to the newsletter, you will get a regular weekly update from June onwards all about the Kickstarter, what's in it, what the background is, who the people are, what the plans are, what the stretch goals are going to be, what they might look like, some sneak peeks of concept art, stuff like that. Okay, that's, that's all going to be in the newsletter. That's the first thing you should do. Uh, the second thing you should do is from the link on the subscribe page, you should go to sign up to see the Kickstarter when it launches, to get notification when it launches. And I will put links to both those things in the comments, either on this podcast episode or under the video, so that you can click straight through to both of those pages if you want to go and do that. Please do, if you're even slightly interested in what I'm doing, please do follow along um, because there'll be plenty of content there. Even if you're not interested in backing the Kickstarter, there will be stuff for you to see and to learn. There is a third thing you can do. I am not here to twist your arm on this one, but um, it would be really nice if you went and supported my Patreon campaign. Now, one thing I'm not going to do is spam the Patreon campaign with stuff about Kickstarter. That is not what the Patreon is for. Um, I have mostly finished spamming anything about the Kickstarter on Patreon. Um, all those folks know who I am, know where, where to find information, so I'm not going to blast the Patreon guys with Kickstarter stuff. It's going to be mostly back to game design, setting, and business chatter that isn't Kickstarter on the Patreon because I know that's what people there are interested in. But what I am going to do on the Patreon is offer patrons the opportunity to preview the Kickstarter before it is launched. And only patrons will be offered that opportunity. So if you'd like a, kick, a, a preview, if you'd like to see what I'm doing, how I change it, make suggestions, make criticisms, undermine my confidence, any of those things, um, then you do need to pay for the privilege. Go and back the Patreon campaign at a level that suits your ability and you will in due course be invited to preview. That preview will probably be in June but will be no later than the beginning of July. So you'll get at least a month to have a look at what I'm proposing and make your feedback if you're interested. So those are three things you can do. Uh, go and sign up for the newsletter, go and sign up to get notification of launch and if you feel moved, join to support my Patreon campaign. Right. Let's talk about what I'm selling on the Kickstarter briefly and then we will wrap this episode up and I will talk more about it next week. Yep, yeah, sorry, like I said, you're going to hear a lot about this. So, the core offer of the Kickstarter is four miniatures. These are four miniatures that have already been designed, already been sculpted, already been printed. Okay, I've got all the test prints, they're great. The four miniatures are Anya Abdallah. Uh, Anya is a um, Venusian squad leader 
She is a leader character. She's kind of wearing a short jacket and uh, a visor, stroke sunglasses. She's got kind of jacks in the back of her head. She's carrying a silenced carbine rifle on the basis that if you want a silencer, keep the silencer. If you don't, they cut it off the front and then you don't have a silenced rifle. That's entirely up to you. Um, she's got a pistol in her left hand and she's got a scarf around her neck. And I think she's a, a, she's a cool dude. Um, she is a hardcore, dangerous character. And I think uh, Adam from Desert Island Designs for the sculpting has really captured that quality of her in, in the pose and the, the, just the expression on her face that says, I will kill you. It's, uh, it's very good. Okay, the next one is uh, Kurtz, uh, Arta Kurtz. Kurtz is the sapper in the squad. If you're familiar with Horizon War Zero Dark, uh, they all have a sort of an associated specialization. They're also designed to be adaptable. They're not, you know, uh, explicitly this thing. In my mind, Kurtz is the sapper. Basically, the main indicator of that is that he's carrying a big case under one arm. Um, and, you know, in my head, that is either his toolkit or it's the case that he carries his fold-up sentry gun or his mines in or his uh, tools for fixing broken mechs, whatever it might be. But you could easily say, no, that's his first aid kit and run him as a doc. Nothing to stop you running him as a medic instead of a sapper. And that's kind of the intent with the design. Uh, he's a big guy, so he, he stands considerably taller than Abdallah, and that is intentional. He's supposed to be comfortably over six foot tall. He is bald, bearded. He is intended to be an older gentleman. Um, doesn't have to be. He's just bald. Uh, and I expect you could probably sculpt him some hair if you really wanted to. Uh, part that, oh, and he's got a bionic left arm. That's the other thing, he has a, a synthetic left arm, which again sort of speaks to his, his background as an old guy and, and his sort of sapper uh, background as a, as a combat engineer. Right. Third design is Miriam and Ghana. Um, now, Miriam, again, these guys are all Venusians from uh, Bal Anub, which is the special forces team that appears in Operation Nemesis. Um, Miriam is the mech pilot, stroke vehicle driver stroke airline pilot the whole thing is that she could if it's a vehicle she can drive it fly it whatever that's her sort of thing but again she is designed to be multifunction. so if you didn't want to use her as a pilot you could use her as a an EWOP electronic warfare operator and that is 100% intentional um, she is the shortest of the three again we've got a variation in height in, in the squad and that is absolutely intentional um, she is the only one of the two not wearing combat boots. She's wearing trainers. Uh, she is also wearing a hijab. Um, now, it doesn't have to be a hijab. It could be a camouflage scarf or part of a face mask or anything along those lines. I don't mind. I designed it to be a hijab. Okay. She, she, the, the character's history is Muslim. Um, a variety of Islam that is unique to Venus and to her particular cavern city. But there we go, that's her story. So those are the first three, and the fourth one is KB3. KB3, KB stands for Kurtz's bot. Um, KB3 is a robot, a synthetic in the Horizon War Zero Dark rules. Um, he is probably, uh, 
I was going to say he's my favourite of the sculpt, but you know, I, I love all of the sculpts. It would be really hard to pick out a favourite because they've all got a little something about them that I love. But I think, I mean, if you really twisted my arm, I think I'd say KB3 was probably my favourite. Um, so KB3, the thing with KB3 is that he can either be a robot, which is a hero in his own right, with um, a programme in the rules, or he can run as a remote combat infantry drone, which is that the hero that is piloting him stays off the board and KB3 is on the table. And in the sort of the setting that we've got, that's Kurtz. So Kurtz is his pilot. So if Kurtz is on the table, then KB3 runs as a robot. If Kurtz isn't on the table, then KB3 runs as Kurtz's drone. Um, but that's pure setting text. You could happily have Kurtz and KB3 on the table at the same time with KB3 running as a drone. Or you could have Kurtz not on the table and run KB3 as a robot. There's nothing to stop you either way. Uh, KB3, um, he's designed to... I, I took a lot of inspiration from different sources. So I took some sources from things like Chappie. I took some inspiration from... Um, oh, I've forgotten what it was now. Yes, sorry, Star Wars Episode 1 with the, the, the robots, the droids that are sort of compressed, they're packed up in those uh, tanks and then they're sort of deployed in a packed form. So he's supposed to look like he can fold down and be picked up. So he's got a compressed sort of backpack on his back, the idea being that you can unroll it and wrap it around him to strap it up. He's got a couple of hand uh, sh handles on his back so that he can be picked up and carried around. Um, but he is also carrying the heaviest weapon of the squad, so he has the squad support weapon. Uh, now, at the moment, the squad support weapon is only with KB3. There are plans that maybe other characters may end up having the option of a squad support weapon or something else as well. But that's in the stretch goals, and I'm going to talk about stretch goals next week. So, um, again, if you're interested, go to precinctomega.co.uk and go and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, go to the Kickstarter pre-launch page and sign up for notification of launch and if you can spare a few bob come over to my patreon and support the patreon campaign in order to be invited to preview the kickstarter at least a month before it starts um, and there are links to all of those things in the comments underneath this episode or under the video and i'll throw some links into the video as well if you're watching on youtube so thank you very much for coming Thank you for listening to another episode of my show, and I'll speak to you all again next week. Warning. Warning. Docking plants released. Decoupling complete. Thank you for visiting Precinct Omega Star Pharaoh. Safe journeys. Until next time.